you're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. For that, Pauline. So, yeah, so today we're looking um, at this series. We're finishing this four weeks of spiritual practices. Um, we started a couple of weeks ago with Jill looking at journaling, and then Dan talked to us about simplicity, and then last week Steve talked to us about prayer. So, today it's fellowship. So, audience participation to get us all involved this morning. And um, what words come to mind when you think of fellowship? Hands up, please. No shouting out. I am from a family of teachers, so I don't like shouting out very much. Hands up, please. What words come to mind? Yeah, one at the back. Eating together. Great start. Thanks for that, Jay. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, any others? Yeah, go. Pumi. Praying together. Brilliant. Any more? One at the back. Community. Excellent. That's good. Yeah, go. Lord of the Rings. Wonderful. I mean, I have never... I, I, Louise made me go and watch the first Lord of the Rings film in the cinema. Slightly off topic, but your fault, Caroline. Um, it's three hours long. Like, I honestly, at one point I looked down and I thought, it's only an hour and 50 minutes that's gone. I've got another hour and 10 minutes of sitting through this. It is awful. And then hopefully, fortunately, she managed to find some other friends to take to watch the second. Anyway, that's totally off topic. So uh, what comes to my mind when I'm thinking of fellowship is this, uh, a book called Songs of Fellowship, which... uh, uh, now, there's 640 songs uh, in this songbook that was released, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager, this was the only songbook that the church that I went to had. And so I reckon probably about 95%, if not more, of all of the Christian songs that I sang as a teenager were from this book. Um, I knew it so well that, honestly, it was a party. I was going to say a party trick. I mean, it, this would be the worst party ever. But... Um, <laughs> I knew it so well that if you, told, if you gave me a song title, I could tell you uh, what number it was in that book. That's how well I knew this uh, thing. Uh, also, it had guitar chords in the back. That's how I learned to play the guitar, was uh, songs from Songs of Fellowship with all the guitar chords listed in the back. Well, it was that one. And also this book, It's Easy to Play Oasis, which is the most honestly titled book that I've ever bought, I think. Anyway, so that's what comes to my mind when I think about fellowship. Um, but the definition that I used when I was looking at this talk, was from an organization called Renovare, which was set up by a guy called Richard Foster, who's done quite a lot of work around this idea of spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices. And this definition says this, fellowship is engaging with other disciples in the common activities of worship, study, prayer, celebration, and service, which sustain our life together and enlarge our capacity to experience more of God. Um, I think one of the things that makes this talk a little bit different to the other three is that journaling is an individual thing, isn't it? It's a private thing that you do on your own. Simplicity, changing your life so that you lacked more simply, takes a bit of personal responsibility. Again, it's about your individual response. And prayer, we do that in community, but also probably more frequently, we do that on our own. Whereas this one, fellowship, just the definition of it, it demands community, doesn't it? Engaging with other disciples, by definition, it isn't something that you can do on your own. And I think hopefully one of the things that the church gives us is a church community around us. But not just a number of people around us, but hopefully a genuinely 
diverse community. I think that's one of the great things about church, isn't it? Is that it encourages genuine diversity. When I was at university, I lived with four boys, none of whom went to church. And they could genuinely go an entire term without speaking to anyone who wasn't between the ages of 18 and 21. I don't think there are that many places in our current society where you form intergenerational relationships like you do in church. And I love that about the church. When I was a teenager, the church that we sang all the Songs of Fellowship songs at, there, was two, there were two old ladies that my dad used to pick up and take to the evening service and back. And um, what I would do is I would go with him, because the older of these two ladies, a lady called Mrs. Coles, she, um, she was in her kind of late 70s, early 80s, I guess. And, um, and she, uh, her eyesight wasn't particularly wonderful, and she didn't walk all that easily. So my dad would drop her off uh, as close as he could drive up to her old bungalow, and then I would get out with uh, with Mrs. Coles, and I would walk her to her front door, and I did this every Sunday evening for, I don't know many, how many years, a, a, a long time, and, and we really developed a fantastic relationship over those years. She was an amazing person. She was hilarious. She had this wonderful, dry sense of humor, and the thing was, she really cared about the young people in the church. Everything that she did and everything that she said in any kind of church context was all about kind of getting out of the way and creating space for the young people. She was fantastic. My favorite story about Mrs. Coles is that we once took a church trip to London for the day. Um, and as part of the day, we went on a boat ride down the Thames. And I was sat next to Mrs. Coles. And then the other side of her was a, a lady about similar age to her who we didn't know. She was just on the boat trip as well. And they started chatting to each other, you know, introduced each other, exchanged pleasantries, you know, just chatting about their experiences of their youth and coming to London and all that kind of stuff. And really quickly, this other lady, who we didn't know, started, you know, complaining about the youth of today, you know, they don't know they're born and all this kind of stuff, you know, and, um, and then she said, um, she said this, she said, the problem with the youngsters of today is that they're all obsessed, aren't they? They're all obsessed with alcohol, drugs, and sex. And Mrs. Cole, without missing a beat, said, oh, I don't know, wouldn't mind a bit of the sex. <laughs> 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 and this lady, <laughs> she, she just turned around and Mrs. Cole just laughed this great booming giant laugh that she had. And the other lady didn't speak to her for the rest of the book, right? Um, I think church is at its best when it helps us to develop fellowship like that. When it helps us to develop relationships like that. Relationships with people who aren't like us. Pumi got up earlier and chatted about this Break the Cycle chapter that we're going to create here. And we're doing that because we care passionately about creating space for everyone, for people of all races. And as Pumi said, that doesn't happen accidentally. We've got to work at it. Steve mentioned that you know this has been a space over the last few years where LGBT plus people can come and share community with others who aren't. And that's happened because of the hard work of a load of people who are sat in front of me right now. But Dave Morton, who's not here particularly, works incredibly hard to create that space. And we've got to do the same for racial integration. And also, I think, we've got to make this a welcoming space for those from a different class background to us as well. We've got to work at it. Why do we have to work at developing fellowship? I think particularly now, we're living at a time where I think where our country is probably more divided than it's been for a long time. 
I'm not lived through a world war. I've only ever lived in the UK. But from the limited experience that I have, I feel like at the moment, we're in a position which is probably more divisive than at any time I've experienced. I think that the polarization around debates, things like Brexit, is staggering, isn't it? People are 100% angrily leave or remain. And I think it's particularly interesting, as it's probably one of those issues, membership of the EU, that five years ago probably lots of people wouldn't really have had much of an opinion on. And now everybody, well not everybody, but the vast majority of people are strongly in one camp or another. It's the dividing line now for much of our society. There's a political organization called Christians on the Left, and they've done a lot of work around the idea of disagreeing well, how we hold community, how we hold relationship with those who believe different ideas to us. Debate, yeah, debate by all means, but do so from a position of respect. I think one of the sad things for me in the Brexit debate has been how quick we've all been to disparage those on the other side of the debate. No one ever changed their mind by being told they were stupid. We've got to model something better than this, I think. So where does all this fit with the part of the Bible that Pauline read to us earlier? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That word there, fellowship, um, is the Greek word koinonia. And it's often used uh, to mean church as well. But the literal translation of it is joint owner. And it comes from the old practice of a farmer who couldn't afford to buy a cow putting in money with other farmers to buy a share. The thing about this is that it's important. You were putting your limited money in with other people to buy something which might improve your livelihood as long as you all worked together on it. Koinonia demands commitment from everyone. Commitment to work together. I think true fellowship demands commitment. There's a couple that Louise and I know from our old church in Swansea, um, Tim and Sue. We first met them when we were students a long time ago now, and they were putting on a meal after church on the Sunday for all of the young people uh, in the church. Um, they've now been part of our lives for 20 years. In that time, Louise and I uh, started going out. We got engaged. We got married. We had two kids. We graduated from university. We got jobs. We lost jobs. We changed jobs. We bought a house. We sold a house. We rented out houses. We moved to London. All of this stuff has happened. And the thing is, when we go back to Swansea, Tim and Sue know us. They know the background behind the decisions that we're making, the years of conversations that have led us to each point. There's no shortcut to that kind of relationship. And guess what? They still cook meals for the young people in the church. Tim and Sue embody, I think, this koinonia fellowship. True koinonia requires involvement, investment. It requires us to show up to really care for those around us. It tells us we should belong to something. The verses that we read in Acts said that the followers devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves. They took action. They were committed to it. 
But it really isn't just about showing up so everyone can see you're committed, is it? We've just finished running Being Human, which is the four-week introduction to the church course that we do. And um, well, last week we looked at what the church is, and one of the questions that we looked at was, do I need to go to church in order to be a Christian? And We've said this before, but I think it's the wrong question. I think a better question is, what kind of Christ-centered community do I need to belong to so that I can grow into being the best possible version of myself? It's not about ticking the box, showing up at five past 11, then heading off straight away as soon as the service is finished and saying, well, I've done my duty this week. It's about committing to connecting with others. Because I think deep down, we all want to belong, don't we? We all want to belong to something. I said this morning that we're going to look, I said last week that this morning we were going to look at small groups. Um, and I think for me, do you have small groups is probably the most common question that I get asked by those people who are joining our church or new to our church or in their first few weeks here. But here's the thing, I don't think do you have small groups actually means do you have small groups? I think when a new person comes to me and says, do you have small groups, what they actually mean is, how do I get to know people? How do I connect? How can I belong to this community? So what does belonging look like? This is a book called uh, The Search to Belong by a guy called Joseph R. Myers. He has some interesting things to say, I think, about how churches call people to belong. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes exploring his idea. And for this, I need four volunteers. One. Great. Stand up. Come out. Three more. I'm just going to start picking people if you don't volunteer. Great. Two at the front here. You two come out. I need one more from the back. Let's have, yeah, great. Wonderful. Come out. Great. Four volunteers. You lot, come and stand over here. This is a visual thing. You need to be over there. I'm going to tell you where you're going and what you're going to do. Um, thank you. Um, I'm not going to get you to introduce yourselves because I'm going to change your names in a bit. You'll be glad to know. So, um, Joseph R. Myers wrote this book. I'm going to call him Joe. I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Joe says there are four spaces in which we have relationships, right? Public, social, personal, and intimate. The first of these is the public space. Gareth, can you step forward, please? You're going to be public space. Welcome. Congratulations. And the first of these is the public space. This is when people connect because of an outside influence, okay, like a sports team or something. Um, this is a picture of Eugene Cross Park, which is the home ground of Ebervale Rugby Club. When I was younger, I was a huge fan of Ebervale Rugby Club. Me and my friends used to travel all over the country watching them. And I had a season ticket for Ebervale, so I used to go and sit in that stand there. I used to sit in the same seat. Uh, week in, week out for season after season. And obviously when you're sitting in the stand season after season in the same seat, there are other people around you who also have season tickets and sit in the same seat. And so you kind of get to know a few people who are sitting around you. And there was one guy called John, an old guy. He sat in the front row of the stand every single week. And John's thing was this, right? When you're watching the rugby match and sometimes a referee would give a decision against you, you think it should be your penalty and he gives it to somebody else. He gives it to the other team. Then generally, you know, there's a bit 
bit of shouting at the ref, you know, rubbish ref, you made the wrong call, and some things I can't say in church, you know, those kind of things, you know, but John's thing, John's thing was this, what he would do, while everybody else is standing up and shouting at the ref, John would be rummaging around under his seat to find his program, because in his program, in the center pages of the program, it would say this, it would say what the referee's name is, and where the referee was from, and John's thing, what he would do is he would say, so in this instance, the referee is Derek Bevan, and he's from Morriston, and we are playing against Newport. And John would look at his program, look where the referee is from, look who we're playing against, and he'd say, he'd shout out really loudly, he comes from Morriston, but he lives in Newport. (laughs) Trying to make the point that he was biased towards Newport because he lived there. Now, the thing is, it's not very funny, is it? But John would say it week in, week out. He would laugh like it was the funniest thing anyone had ever said. Like as if he was Eddie Izzard's long-lost Welsh grandfather. And he would do it every week. Next week, we're playing against Swansea, and the referee's from Cardiff. And then he'd be rummaging. He comes from Cardiff, but he lives in Swansea. And he'd laugh again. But here's the thing. After a while, my friends and I genuinely grew to love it. And when John wasn't there, we missed it. And then we started to chat to him a bit before and after the game. And we celebrated victories together. And we commiserated after defeats together. We had developed a relationship in public space. It's the community that's built through shared affection. In my friends and John's case, Ebervale Rugby Club. So public space. Your name is John now. Hi, John. Um, great. Can you, John, move back a bit and then uh, move forward? Thank you very much. Next up is social space. So in social space, we have a slightly deeper relationship. We, say, we share snapshots, Joe says in the book, of what it would be like to share personal space with us. You might share social space with a neighbor who you know well enough to say, hey, I'm going to be out tomorrow. Can you just take this parcel for me or borrow something from? That's kind of what social space is. Obviously, you might share social space with some people that you work with not obviously if you work here where you share a lot more than social space Rebecca and Nathan both of whom work here took my kids to the zoo uh, for the day last Saturday that's a bit more than social space never had that when I worked in financial services Um, so social space gives us a safe selection space where you can work out who you'd like to have a bit of a deeper relationship with. I've got a mate called Luke, and he recently became a train driver. And when you are training to become a train driver, you are put on a training course with lots of other train trainees, and you spend a lot of time with them. And so over the course of six months of seeing these guys every day, he spent a lot of time together and get to know people. I would ask him about the other trainees, and he would you know, talk about the ones he got on with, the ones he wasn't so sure about, what they were interested in, what they liked, what shared interests they had. He got on well with one of them. And they're now friends. They now see each other outside of work. They go to the pub together. They've moved from a public space to a social space. So public space is John. Social space is Dave, Luke's new friend. So you want to call Dave. Dave, could you move back, please? Great. Rach, can you move forward, please? Thank you. Um, So next up 
We have personal space. Personal space is where you share some private experiences, some feelings, some thoughts. These are the people that you would say know you well and that you know well. They understand you. You feel comfortable with them seeing you when you're not at your best. You confide in them about things that you wouldn't tell most people. Uh, earlier this week, I read this amazing story about a lady called Nina who lives in Melbourne and the, the relationship that she's developed with two brothers, Luke and Daniel, who live next door to her. Really sadly, the brother's mum was murdered six years ago. And from then on, Nina has been delivering food over the garden fence to these two boys. They've now got an Instagram channel where they post videos of them receiving the food, which thousands of people follow. You can never see Nina because she's so short. You can just see her hand reaching over the top of the fence, holding a plate of spinach pie or something, or something she likes to cook. So the boys have known Nina for their whole lives. They've always lived there. But their relationship moved beyond social space after their mum died. The article I saw ended with Nina saying, yeah, you've got a grandmother. I look after you now. That's it. So public space is John. Social space is Dave. Personal space is Nina. Thank you. Thanks, Nina. Um, and finally, there's one more, this intimate space. This is where Joe says we share our naked experiences and feelings. This is obviously metaphorical as well as literal. It's the place where we can be totally honest, totally vulnerable, and yet not be ashamed of who we are. It's important to point out here that this intimate relationship isn't just referring to romantic relationships. Obviously, romantic relationships are in intimate space, but there can definitely be other platonic relationships which are intimate. I'm sure loads of us have had this with a best friend or with a brother or sister. Anyone here watch Fleabag? BBC comedy show uh, that finished a couple of weeks ago. It's about a woman whose name you never find out, so she gets referred to as Fleabag, which is a bit strange, but the program's great. And one of the things they keep coming back to is the relationship that she has with Claire, her sister. Uh, in the first episode, we're introduced to Claire um, when they go to a lecture together, the star of the show and Claire, and the dad buys them tickets for this lecture every year. And that's about the only relationship they have. They're totally in public space. They have a shared experience through going to this lecture every year. Now, if you're currently watching this, this is the time that you need to stick your fingers. I'm, gonna, I'm about to give away something right at the end. Um, if you're listening on the podcast, skip forward 20 seconds. Um, and so the last episode, the star of the show, I'll say it a bit quieter just in case. She's chatting to Claire, her sister, about a guy that Claire likes. And she's saying, you need to go and get him. And he's about to fly out to Norway. And so she says to Claire, you need to go. You need to go to the airport. You need to go and get him. And then the sister, who's very pragmatic, the sister says, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't even know what terminal he's flying out of. And I haven't even got a ticket. I have to spend a load of money on a plane ticket just so I can get into the departure lounge. And I don't even know what terminal he's in, just so I can try and go and find him. And then she stops. And she says... The only person that I would run through an airport for is you. They've developed from public space to this intimate space. That's a great example of what intimate space looks like. So public space, step forward please, is John. Social space, step forward please, is Dave. Personal space, step forward please, is Nina. And intimate space is Claire. Thank you very much for being my wonderful volunteers. <laughs> Um, so Joseph Myers says that 
all human relationships fit within these four categories. We said this morning we were going to talk a bit about small groups uh, as a good practical example of fellowship. So here's a question for you. Which of these four spaces do you think small groups sit in? Hands up for public. Hands up for social. Hands up for personal. Hands up for intimate. It's really interesting, isn't it? There's a genuine spread. So nobody, there were a few people who said public, but the other three categories, the small groups were shared across those things. I wonder if part of the problem with small groups is that churches have consciously or subconsciously, churches have told us that they have to be in intimate space, full of intimate relationships. Maya says that there's a formula for roughly how many relationships we can have in any given space. He says that for every 16 people that we can have a relationship with in a public space, we can have eight in a social space, four in a personal, and one or two in an intimate space. But the way that we often talk about small groups, we sometimes talk about them in the kind of way that means that we're expecting them all to be intimate relationships, where we're expecting everyone in this group all eight or ten people who have been thrown together, often just because they happen to have joined the church at the same time, and we expect them to be in an intimate relationship. We expect them to immediately start bearing their souls to each other, sharing their deepest thoughts and their deepest fears. And then the problem with that is that some people don't want to do that. So you end up with a group where some people, probably the majority of people, are kind of just about giving enough personal experience to make it look like they're engaging in this intimate space, whereas actually, the stuff they're really struggling with, they're going to hold that back. How many of us have experienced that in small groups over the years? How many of us have done that in small groups over the years? Yeah, me too. So how do we get past that? I think there are two problems that we need to solve. Firstly, I think that the secret is to realize that all connections are significant. All spaces are important. Intimate space isn't better than social space. The story I told at the beginning about Mrs. Coles, the old lady from my parents' church, my interactions with Mrs. Coles remained in a social space forever. But it was still significant. I was a bearer at her funeral. It was a significant social relationship. So all spaces are important. I think the second problem is that churches and church leaders have put small groups in the wrong space. I wonder if instead of intimate space, small groups work better in social space. Let's look back quickly at what social space was about. Remember this one was Dave my mate's new work friend. And I said that this is where we start to share snapshots of what it would be like to share personal space with us. We're starting to develop a relationship. We're testing the waters a bit. We're finding out if mutually we have enough in common to build a deeper relationship. In social space, there's safety to authentically share about who you are, but on your terms. You can safely choose how much you share with the others in that space. Uh, crucially for small groups, I think it allows for fun, commitment, spending time with others, but also creates a space in which deeper relationships can grow. You might find that you're closer to some in your small group than to others, and over time, there might be some relationships within the group that develop into personal space. 
where you're happy to share more of your life and be more open, vulnerable, honest. But if we make open, vulnerable, and honest a kind of prerequisite of belonging to a small group, I think we're just setting ourselves up to fail. And we're setting up our small groups to be pretty frustrating experiences for some. Here's the other thing. I think if we're saying that small groups work better, more honestly, if we put them in social space, we also need to realize that small groups aren't the only place where we can develop these kinds of relationships and friendships. They aren't the only place where we can build social, personal, and maybe intimate space. They aren't the only place where we can develop fellowship. I said earlier that when people say to me, do you have small groups, I think what they often mean is how do I get to know people? How do I connect? How can I belong? And I think we find that in a number of different ways. Small groups, you know, they're great. They're important. They allow us to discuss our faith and to have genuine conversation about spirituality that, that can be difficult to achieve on a Sunday morning, can't it? But they aren't the only way that you can find belonging in a church. We often talk here about how there's no divide between what some people historically have called secular and sacred. God is the God of all of our lives. We are holistic people. We say if the good news really is good news, it has to be good news physically, spiritually, socially, educationally, emotionally, economically, and environmentally. We talk about how Jesus came to bring shalom, a Hebrew word, which means wholeness, completeness. Nothing is purely secular. Everything is sacred. So we say that. And then in practice, what we do is we say, oh, but if you want to grow in your faith, well, you really need to join a small group. I know a number of people, some of whom are sitting there in front of me right now, whose faith and the outworking of that faith has grown immensely by volunteering at the food bank or through the conversations that you've had while riding your bike on a Sunday afternoon with the cycling group or through the relationships that you've developed while playing football with our community kickabout on a Monday night. Small groups are important, but the, develop the development of fellowship isn't just about small groups. We find belonging, we find connection, we find fellowship in loads of different ways. We learn to serve God. We become a better example of Jesus in many different ways. So just as I finish, as a church, what are we going to do about this? Well, there's a few practical steps that we're going to take to join in, to practice fellowship. There's a bit of information on our website about what we're calling Connect. Our website's going to be relaunched in a couple of months. And when we do that, we've got this section that we're going to have with a load of different ways that you could get involved. It will include everything from small groups to running groups, volunteering opportunities to men's curries and women's breakfasts. And if you'd like to set up another thing like that, maybe a men's breakfast or a women's curry, we're inclusive here, or anything else, come and speak to me about it. We'd love to help you with that. The second is that if you would like to join in by starting or joining a small group, we're going to do a bit of a mapping exercise over the next couple of weeks. There's something in the news sheet about this, but if you're interested in joining or starting a small group, then get in touch with me because we're going to see if there are areas um, that we're not really covering at the moment. I said last week that most of our small groups are in the, the Waterloo or Kennington area, but we know that loads of you work in places where you can't get to Waterloo or you live a bit further out and you come in on a Sunday. So if you're interested in that, we'd love to do this kind of mapping exercise where we look to find out where people are 
and if we can help you to join in in that way. Um, if you'd like to host a small group or lead one, but you're not sure that you're up to it, come and speak to me about that as well. We've got loads of resources that we could help you out with that. And I think that if we're looking at this as a way of creating a social space and not an intimate space, hopefully that should make it a fair bit easier. Um, I'm going to end, but I'm going to finish with one more quote from this book that I mentioned earlier. It says this, the search for community is a fundamental life search. We need to belong. Being in fellowship together is not just a nice thing to do on a Sunday morning. It's a significant part of life. So let's work at it. Let's try and get the church for 11. Let's turn our phones off when the service starts so we're not checking Facebook when the sermon gets a bit boring. Let's stick around afterwards. And if somebody asks you how your week was, tell them. Let's volunteer for something. Let's join a small group. Join the running group. Go to women's breakfast. Let's commit to each other. Because I think that's how we find fellowship. Okay. You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org.